Welcome to Books and Nachos, a podcast for those of us who find excitement in the pages of a good book. At booksandnachos.com, you can find over 100 reviews from fiction to nonfiction, graphic novels, and more. There's also links to our forums, our Facebook and Twitter pages, and information about our Podbean crowdfunding campaign. At booksandnachos.com, we're here to find you something great to read. Hello, Books and Nachos listeners. This is Arnie, back again with another review of a Hellraiser book. But no, I'm not at the Scarlet Gospels or any of the other pinhead-related story collections, of which I've discovered there's more and more. Did you know Pinhead went up against Sherlock Holmes? I'll be reviewing that in the coming weeks. But if you've been following our Hellraiser retrospective series at nowplayingpodcast.com, you know, Stuart Jacob and I just reviewed the first Hellraiser film, and we're going through the entire series. But I have to say, the research for the Hellraiser series is become daunting. Out of all the retrospective series we've ever done, Hellraiser appears to be one of the series that has the most ink spilled about it. Of course, there was the James Bond series, Star Wars, Psycho, but then the horror series really seems to appeal to its fans, with Friday the 13th and Nightmare on Elm Street having comprehensive making of books and behind-the-scenes features, and even Return of the Living Dead getting a documentary and a book. And because of this, I've discovered there are so many bits of trivia and information about Hellraiser that not only couldn't we get them all into the podcasts that we do based on the movies, but in fact we intentionally try not to just bring up trivia for the sake of trivia. We bring up stuff that's relevant to the conversation, or that influences our review, or that we find particularly interesting, but not just bring up points for the sake of, hey, I read IMDb trivia, if you can look at it there, we figure you'll figure it out on your own. But with Hellraiser, there is a wealth of making of materials, several books I'm reading behind the scenes. And so for those of you constant listeners who'd like to explore the depths of Hellraiser and go further, I thought I would review the making of Hellraiser books that I'm reading to give you an insight into where the best behind the scenes information is. And to start off, today I'm going to be discussing the book Leviathan, the story of Hellraiser and Hellbound Hellraiser 2 by Christian Sellers and Gary Smart. Before I get into the book itself, I first of all want to just give these guys major props. I have so much respect for them because these were a couple of horror fans who on their own got a documentary and a book made. Leviathan started off as a DVD documentary with retrospective interviews with the makeup people and the actors and Peter Atkins, the writer of Hellraiser 2. And while they were making the documentary, they realized in order to get all the people they needed, they had to fly to the States. And so they did a Kickstarter for 16,000 pounds. That Kickstarter was successful, and I want to congratulate them for that. As an author myself who recently did a Kickstarter for our now-playing book, Underrated Movies We Recommend, I know the blood, sweat, tears, and night terrors that go into it. 
I know the hard work it takes to write your own book and self-publish, and I know just the stress involved with a Kickstarter. That these guys did it, I just want to give them a virtual high five. Congratulations. No matter what I say from this point on, I just want to applaud your achievement here. I admire your accomplishment. That said, I am going to be honest with my response. And that starts with the documentary. This wasn't the first documentary these guys have made. They were the ones who made More Brains, A Return of the Living Dead, which was a documentary I greatly enjoyed watching back when Stuart Jacob and I did our Return of the Living Dead series back in 2013. They also took that documentary and made it into a trade paperback book, which I bought, and I was a bit disappointed in that book, simply because the binding didn't stay together, the pages were falling out, and I'd paid top dollar as that book had been out of print and was very difficult to get. But they have had experience in that realm, so they're coming to Hellraiser now, and I do like seeing these fan-made productions that have experience behind them. And they've limited their scope. As you may get from the title, this is only discussing movies one and two of the Hellraiser series. The way the authors describe it, they're looking at the British-made films since they are Brits themselves. Although, of course, the Hellraiser films were funded by U.S. company New World. They were filmed in Britain. Clive Barker himself is British. And so they were sticking with their countrymen. At least that's the reason they give. Now, I know from being a Hellraiser fan, that as each subsequent sequel comes out, fans determine which ones to them are the quote-unquote good Hellraiser films. That's what Stuart Jacob and I are doing with our retrospective series. For many people, only the first film is worth anything and the sequels never lived up. But for a lot of people, part one and part two feel like a duology. It's perhaps because they were filmed back-to-back with some of the same cast, a lot of the same production crew. The biggest difference is that Barker wasn't writing or directing. He'd handed those duties off while he went to work on other projects. But it's easy to see those first two films as the story of Christy Cotton and her journey into hell. And when Hellraiser 3 came out, production had moved to the States and the films just felt a lot different. Now there's others who include Hellraiser 3 in their personal canon, seeing it as the end of a trilogy that deals with Pinhead's demise and resurrection, and then some people consider just the first four, which truly do produce an arc, and all of which were from stories by Clive Barker, and two, three, and four all had their scripts by Peter Atkins, and did follow a continuity from film to film. And then when we get into the direct-to-video five and on, not a lot of people hold those very dear, and because they are anthologies, it seems like people can pick and choose between those. So our authors here have picked parts one and two, and there's certainly a lot to be said about them. We're dealing with Clive Barker at the very start of his rise to stardom. His first books had only been published two years before he was making Hellraiser, and that quote about Stephen King seeing the future of horror had changed his life. So to go from a playwright to a famous author to a film director is quite a journey that is documented in Leviathan. That said, I think there are some really interesting stories to be told about the makings of Hellraiser 3 and especially 4. 
where director Kevin Yeager pulled his name off of it due to studio interference and reshoots, and so that became a notorious Alan Smithy film. So if you, like me, want to know more about the Hellraiser series, this obviously isn't going to be the book for you. But by only covering two films, instead of going broad, the authors are able to go deep. And they do a very good job as selling Hellraiser and Hellbound Hellraiser 2 as being two parts of a whole. Now, whether you watch their movie or read their book, I will say there are two notable absences. The first is Ashley Lawrence, star of both Hellraiser films. I've personally met Miss Lawrence. I know that at the convention where I was, she was a little bit on edge. She was very nervous about photographs being taken. She had assistants kind of hurting people around her in a way that was a bit unusual. So while her absence in the project is not noted, no explanation is given, I personally can project that perhaps she didn't want to discuss Hellraiser any further on camera. The other notable absence is Clive Barker, and the authors did address this. When they started the project, they did reach out to Mr. Barker, and he was contractually obligated to participate in a different documentary about his own works. A documentary that has yet to see the light of day, I might add. But then when they did successfully fund their Kickstarter and came to the States, they did interview Clive's partner, Johnny Raymond. And through Johnny, they did get verbally that Clive Barker would participate, and it was even something advertised in the Kickstarter. However, when they came to the States, Clive Barker was very ill, and so he was not able to participate. That's a damn shame, because even though he has talked so much about the Hellraiser films, and on the 20th anniversary DVD, it's hysterical because he just starts off this interview like, this is going to be my final word about those damned films. He has nothing more to say about them, and yet... Having a retrospective where everybody's talking in the third person about Clive and projecting what they think Clive was trying to do and remember what Clive had said at a time, it would have been interesting to see Barker's own responses to these. However, I understand. Again, this was a fan production, not one done by Barker's own Seraphim Films, not one done by a studio re-releasing the movies, they didn't have the leverage or the finances to, when Barger recovered, include him. But it is a disappointment when going through this book that discusses every aspect in so much impressive detail. But what they ended up with was a documentary of mammoth size. The first disc had over four hours on Hellraiser. And that was just the first movie. I thought the four-hour documentary was going to cover both films. But no, it was over four hours on Hellraiser, with a second disc giving over three hours on Hellbound Hellraiser 2, and then a third disc that had bonus features, more of the interviews, including an interview about Hellraiser 3. Their documentary was very professionally filmed. The interviewees gave great responses to questions. The lighting, the cuts between interviews... The quality recording of most of the interviews, all top-notch and very professional. I've personally been involved in documentaries that had professional film crews that didn't look or sound anywhere as good as Leviathan's movie did. But a couple fatal flaws. 
The first of which is nine hours. Sometimes I understand that saying you have a lot of content is a selling point, but when it comes to the discussion of two films with a total runtime of about three hours, to say you have nine hours on the making of those films is overly indulgent. They may have had a great cameraman, they may have had an astonishing boom operator, but their editor really needed to work, because when I was watching this, you'd get the same information from multiple viewpoints. I mean, look at that More Brains documentary they did for Return of the Living Dead. It was two hours plus bonus features. The one I consider the watermark for behind-the-scenes documentaries of films is Never Sleep Again, The Elm Street Legacy. And that's a four-hour documentary. That's a lot. But it's covering seven films, not two. It had many more participants. It felt indulgent, but not inordinate. Leviathan is stratospheric overkill in its material. I mean, I'm a Hellraiser mega fan, but I found this nine-hour journey to eventually be arduous. A lot of the discussion did focus on the makeup and the technical aspects, and that's given the people interviewed. We had the four Cenobite actors from Hellraiser 2, three of whom were also Cenobites in Hellraiser 1. We had the actor who played Skinless Frank. We had several of the makeup and effects men, the costumers. As such, there was a large focus on the technical of how they did stuff, and then lesser focus on the story and why they did stuff, at least until you get to Hellbound 2 and Pete Atkins is there. But there was a great focus on the costuming, the makeup, the shooting schedule. Christopher Young participated. He's one of their bigger gets and was able to speak to the creation of that iconic score. And speaking of score, Leviathan, the DVD, has its own score that the composer certainly did a good job of making music that sounds like it could be an outtake from Christopher Young's own recordings for those first two films. But wow, it is looped endlessly during this documentary. It, the producers apparently felt that listening to a person talk wasn't enough. You had to have background music playing at every single minute of the presentation, and some of that music was mixed too loud where it became hard to hear people, and one of the songs includes the ringing of a bell every 20 seconds, and that song plays for five minutes or more at a time, and so repeatedly, you're struck with this Pavlovian torture device as you're trying to listen to the interviews, but you just become increasingly distracted by every 20 seconds this bell goes off. It became maddening for me. I only focus on the bell. Now, the DVD set was a limited edition, released in 2013, and sold out on their site. While it's still readily available on eBay, on Amazon, I think there's one of those auto-pricing errors as the cheapest copy is about $1,000. But you can still see this documentary if you buy the recently released Scarlet box set of Hellraiser from Arrow Video. That's right, this fan-made documentary has been included by Arrow as bonus features in their new box set, which contains the movies Hellraisers 1, 2, and 3. And this, I must say, is a much better version of the Leviathan documentary. You're given one and a half hours on Hellraiser, one and a half hours on Hellraiser 2, and then they've culled what little bits of Hellraiser 3 they had from bonus features and whatnot, 
and given about 30 to 40 minutes to Hellraiser 3. This is the format if you're going to watch the documentary to see it in. The nine-hour cut is only for sadomasochists, which may in fact be perfect for Hellraiser, as it is a series about sadomasochism. But then, this is Books and Nachos. I'm not really reviewing the DVD as much as I'm giving you background information on it. Because after the limited edition DVDs, they did take these interviews and compile them into a hardcover book. It's limited to 1,000 copies, of which I have number either 296 or 246. It's kind of hard to read the gold sharpie on it. They call the book a companion to the documentary, but what it really is, is the documentary in written form, edited down and bringing the words directly from the screen to the book. Now, I watched the nine-hour documentary, I watched the cuts on the Arrow video, and I read this book. And by and large, it's all the same information. If you've watched the documentary, you don't need to read this book. Even if you've only watched the shorter cuts, there's not a lot in this book as far as the words go, other than the making of and the introduction that's going to be new to you. But the book is 230 full-color pages. It is really nicely presented. The hardcover feels really solid with gorgeous cover art by Graham Humphreys. Right away, I can say this is a better produced book than More Brains was. I read this book cover to cover, and not a single page fell out. I'm really happy to see that. But More, I think this book is better than the movie. Again, if you've seen those movies, you don't get anything new from the book. But if you haven't seen them, I think this book is the best way to ingest the material. First of all, again... A nine-hour documentary seems like an uphill climb, and certain times they would just linger on topics and I'm just move along. I'll admit, I put their documentary in a podcast app and watched it at 1.5x at times just so I could keep it moving. But a book, you read at your own pace. Nothing felt overindulgent or off-balance when I was reading the written version. More Barker is included in this book. Now, they did not get to interview Barker himself, but the book is well-researched, and they were able to find Barker's interviews with other outlets, and they cite their sources, and so it makes it feel like the creator is a part of the process instead of the special guest notably absent from his own party. Third, there's no music in this book. Again, the composer for the documentary did a great job of aping Christopher Young's style, but I'm really happy to not have it playing over and over again after nine hours. And then the documentary had a lot of behind-the-scenes photos that they'd pan on the screen and show for a few seconds at a time, and that's not enough time to really absorb them. Here, in this 230-page book, there are so many behind-the-scenes photos, makeup photos, set photos, Angles of the Cenobite costumes I've never seen before. You can just linger on the photos and stare at them. You don't have to reach for the remote and hit pause to look at a photo in detail. You just stare at it. Sometimes I found myself bringing the book closer to my face to even see in more detail. I suppose that would be my only complaint about it being a book is that at some points 
even printed. I wanted more detail on the photos, but I'm looking at Polaroids that were taken in 1986 and 1987. I may be asking a little bit too much. Unfortunately, there is one problem with the photos. Their layout designer for the book actually chose their own bloodstained style over the photographs. Each page has a pattern on it that is supposed to be like a bloodstain, which is very fitting for Clive Barker's style. All the words are printed in white over a dark red or gray background, but the bloodstains often are put on top of the photos, and while they're semi-transparent, it really, at times, was frustrating that I wasn't seeing the photographs completely. The graphic designer decided, let me scratch this photo here, let me put some blood on this photo there, and it actually appears to be a template. So much like the looping of the music in the documentary, the use of the bloodstained template, at times, did distract me and take away from some of the enjoyment of a photo. If I was looking at this in any other format, including some of the books I'll be discussing, they wouldn't have done that. Also, this book is clearly self-published, and having self-published a book, I again know what that goes through. And in fact, Stuart Jacob, Marjorie, and I were done writing that book in 2016. So why isn't the book's hardcover out yet? Because we spent a lot of time with editors, and then we had a second proofreader that we hired to go through the book. And then we had test readers go through the book and find even more problems. We made sure every typo that we could possibly catch was corrected, and every word in proper place. And it seems that Christian Sellers and Gary Smart didn't have that. There's a lot of typos in here, and I'm saying more than a dozen. Over 230 pages, you may think, well, that's a very low typo per page ratio, but when you're reading, it really stuck out to me. And more, at times, the typos would be incorrect words, and so I'd be stretching my mind to try to understand what it was they were saying. So it came off like improper grammar. One really good proofreading pass before going to print would have been so easy to do and make this easy to fix just by spending a little more time on it. But once it's in hardcover, I know only too well that time has passed. So what do you get from Leviathan? You learn of Barker's early days, the writings of the Books of Blood, his writing of the movie's transmutations and Rawhead Rex. You get to see how Hellraiser came to be, the struggles with getting it made, the way he got the financing, the reasoning behind his writing The Hellbound Heart as a novella, but also just as a spec script that he could make cheaply. Tony Randall, who was the director of Hellraiser 2 and the New World executive sent in to guide Clive Barker during Hellraiser 1, does have a lot of stories about the decisions made while doing those films. And I think he's another one of their big gets besides Christopher Young, talking about his involvement shaping Barker's vision for the first one and then directing it himself for part two. Really, when you read this book, you walk away feeling like very few questions, other than Barker's own thoughts as they would be today, are left unanswered. There's far more good in this book than bad. I do recommend, if you want to know about the making of Hellraiser, open the book. 
It doesn't require hours or a ceremony involving disembodied dove heads. It just involves spending 25 pounds, around $32, to get a nice hardcover collectible that will teach you so much about Hellraiser and about filmmaking. Again, I do applaud these guys for the book and the documentary, despite the problems I did have with both formats. But that's not the only making of book that I read for our Hellraiser retrospective series. Oh no, there's actually four of them, each one covering a different amount of the Hellraiser universe. So I'll be back next week talking about those while in the meantime I continue to read the Scarlet Gospels and the other Hellraiser fiction to bring you reviews of those as well. If you want to hear our reviews of the Hellraiser movies, head to nowplayingpodcast.com, click the banner at the top. Our Hellraiser reviews are running one per week now through the end of the year. I hope you can join us, and it's now playing donors' support that allows us to do that podcast week after week, and it enables us to do books and nachos, which now that our own book is done, both Stuart and I are going to be spending some more time on. Thank you for listening, and I will see you in hell. Thank you for listening to this episode of Books and Nachos. You can also find many more book reviews at our website, booksandnachos.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please help spread the word about our podcast by leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. Books and Nachos is a crowdsourced podcast with no sponsors or ads. You can support our show by pledging to our Podbean campaign at booksandnachos.com support. The music for Books and Nachos is The Right Prescription by Chai Weapon, provided by PodsafeAudio.com. Books and Nachos is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2017, all rights reserved, and no part of the show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. <laughs>